1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 23, or I'm sorry, verses 19 through 22. It's a bad sign when I don't know what verses I'm preaching about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 19 through 22. This past week, actually just yesterday, uh, Gibson and myself, my son Gibson, we did some gardening. Uh, the neighbor came and said, hey, one of your trees is starting to like grow up through the fence and it's kind of bending over. Would you do something about it? And this is kind of how I garden. I wait until there's an emergency and then I do something about it. I said, sure. And so we were out for several hours yesterday afternoon in the heat of the sun. Now, my understanding or my idea of gardening is, is basically just that. I wait till plants become ugly and overgrown, and then I go, they need cut down completely. That's, that's basically the extent of my plant knowledge. I, I know nothing about plants. I can't tell a, a weed from a flower at all, unless in that moment it kind of sort of looks pretty. And so what I do is every once in a while I go through an area and I just cut it all way back to the ground, and, and I go in, in the hope and faith that the pretty stuff will come back at some point. So will the ugly stuff, but, but it will come back. I, I also know about gardening that every time I do it, I will inevitably get poison ivy. Um, that has also seemed to be proven true this week, so that's awesome. This is also why I don't garden, because it is of the devil. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> you know, a good gardener would know what to pull out and what to keep. They would have some semblance of a standard, maybe a book or, or ideas in their head that they would know this is a good plant, this is a bad plant. Don't take out the good plants, leave those in place, take out everything around it, they would also know, hey, that's poison ivy, don't touch it. I, I, I kind of sort of know what poison ivy is, but that's never seemed to help me much. You know, today's sermon is called Seeing Clearly Through Chaos. We live in a very chaotic world with ideas in our world that just grow in abundance and multiply and overgrow and form what you would see in my backyard, just an absolute mess of overgrown ideas and ideologies and concepts. And it's really hard to tell what ideas are weeds that should be pulled out and what ideas have beauty and meaning and truth that, that should be left and fostered to grow? We need a standard. And so today we're looking at what is a very short passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. But it is a very difficult and much debated passage. My plan last week was actually to include this in last, last week's sermon. I realized late in the week that was a bad idea. And so shortly before preaching last week, I took that out. We talked about it briefly, but we need to spend some more time on this. I want us to look very deeply at this passage, partially because it can be confusing, but mostly because I think that Paul's main point is so crucial for us today and can get lost behind some of the debate that goes on around this. 
And so we're going to look deeply at these four verses today. And in order to understand this passage, we need to understand a whole bunch of background information. Otherwise, we're just going to read our own ideas into this. And so we need to understand what it means to live in a confusing and chaotic world. And the confusing and chaotic world that was present for these early Thessalonians and why Paul is writing to them to bring clarity to this. Thessalonica was in the heart of what had been Greece, ancient Greece. If you know a little bit about history, you know the ancient Greece grew and its empire spread, but then it was conquered and it was taken over by the Romans. But Paul, in his second missionary journey, he enters the heart of ancient Greece, Greek culture at its core. In his first missionary journey, he had traveled through what is often called Asia Minor. We know it today as Turkey. It was relatively close to Israel. And everywhere he went, there were a si- there was a sizable population of Jewish people. He would go and speak in the tabernacles, or I'm sorry, in the um, synagogues. And he would reason from the Old Testament to win people to Jesus Christ. Because by and large, their cultures had been well-versed in the Old Testament. They were familiar with the people of God of the Old Testament. But something interesting happens on the second missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, Paul goes to cities that you might be familiar with. Thessalonica, that's where we have the letter of the Thessalonians. He goes to the city of Philippi. We have the letter to the Philippians. He goes to the city of Corinth. We have the letter to to the Corinthians, two letters actually. These are all letters from Paul to brand new baby churches in these very Greek cities. Now, when Paul enters this area, he first goes early on to the city of Philippi. And if you would turn to Acts 16, I want us to see a bit of background here. In Acts 16, we are told about the beginning of this new leg of his missionary journeys. And there is something very unusual that happens in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, verse 13 says this, On the Sabbath, we, this is Paul and his traveling companions, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now that might seem like a really mundane detail, like what's going on? What's the big deal here? Philippi was a sizable, now Roman city, formerly Greek city. This is not a tiny little town. And yet, Paul goes and he expects, like many of the other cities, to find a synagogue there. But instead of going to the synagogue that he would expect to go to, he goes instead outside the city gate to a river. Why does he do that? It's because Philippi did not have a synagogue. According to Old Testament law, you needed 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. So in this huge city of Philippi, there were not even 10 Jewish men. This tells us something so important about their culture. The Old Testament, God's word to his people throughout the history of Israel was not as important in this area. They were not as well versed in what God had been doing. And so he goes out to where the alternative to the synagogue would be. 
they didn't have enough men to form a synagogue in the Jewish community, what they would do is meet at a local river and they would have times of prayer. Often it would be gatherings of women. And so he goes there because he knows there's no synagogue there, but he expects and and does, in fact, find a group of people that are praying there. This tells us so much here about the culture of this Greek area that Paul has moved into. They don't know the word of God. Now, as he goes on into some of the other cities, and Thessalonica is one of them, he does go to Jewish synagogues. But this sets a tone for his missionary journey. There's another interesting account in Acts chapter 17. Turn there, if you would. I've been telling you a bit about the background to when Paul wrote Thessalonica, as we've gone through this, or Thessalonians, as we've gone through this sermon series. If you remember, he goes into the area, he goes to Philippi first, he then goes to Thessalonica, he gets chased out of Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, he gets chased out of Berea, he's put on a ship by his friends to get out of the area because his life is at risk. And he goes on to Athens. And in Acts chapter 17, we learn what's going on in Athens. Here Paul is in Athens. He is left behind Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica to work with that church and see how they're doing. And if you remember, the the letter of 1 Thessalonians is written in response to Timothy's report. Timothy eventually catches up with Paul, says, hey, they're doing great. They're struggling with a few things. Paul writes a letter to them. That's what we're studying. But while Paul is in Athens, and, and if you know this, Athens is like the capital of the ancient Greek society. While Paul is in Athens, he teaches. And I want us to look at what's going on. So if you look at 17 verse 15, gives us the background there. It says, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So he's waiting there for them to catch up. And then if you skip down to verse 22, it says that Paul goes to the Areopagus, It's a very famous place for Greek philosophers to gather and debate philosophy. And Paul gathers with them and he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So he goes to Athens and they have all these statues to gods and goddesses. They're very religious. They they have hearts that say we want to worship things. We want to be good people and do the right things. They had a god or a goddess for everything. And just in case they missed anything, they had this idol, this statue to the unknown god. Let's make sure we don't offend anybody. We'll just worship everything. All religions, all ideas are welcome. Because Greek culture was saturated with the idea that everybody could and should get what they wanted. And the way they would get what they wanted is you would worship the proper god or goddess. You wanted your crops to grow? Well, there was a god or goddess for that. You wanted to have good babies? There was a god or goddess for that. You wanted to get wealthy? There was a god or goddess for that. Whatever you wanted... There was a way to get it. This seems great. 
Seems like a wonderful society. There's a way to get whatever you want. But Paul understands it for what it is. It was very, very chaotic. And look at what Paul preaches to this society. If you look down at verse 24, I want to read Acts 17, 24 to 31. Paul stands up in this meeting place of these amazing scholars and philosophers. And this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul goes into this very religious, very tolerant culture with lots of different ideas that all mix together. And he stands up and he says, there is one God who made the world and everything in it. God is in charge. He is sovereign. Paul says, and God doesn't need anything from you. He then goes on to say, you are ignorant You think you know the gods and goddesses, but you don't. And he says that God has given us someone who has risen from the dead to prove all of this, referring to Jesus Christ, his son. All of this that Paul says confronts the chaos of this culture that is based on personal fulfillment by seeking what you desire and finding your own way to get it. And Paul challenges their most basic idea that they can do or believe whatever they want. Instead, he says, there is one true God who sent his son who rose from the dead. Now, turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I say all this to understand the culture that's going on where this city is located and the world that they live in. They are part of this culture, this worship anything, find your own happiness and find your own meaning culture. And this way of thinking was impacting and invading the church and changing how they were thinking about Jesus Christ. He knew this was a danger because he faced it all the time, everywhere he went. And in the context of the passage today, if you look back at chapter 5, verse 14, he says... And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And we looked at this last week, who were the idle and disruptive? There were those that were coming in and instead of serving in the church, 
doing what they needed to be doing. They instead were teaching false things and they were causing disruptions in the church. We looked at that last week. We get more information on this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Because evidently Paul's first letter wasn't enough. He had to follow up and, and bring some clarification to this. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching, or some translations say tradition, you have received from us. So Paul says, here's what's going on in the church, and I'm warning you about this. But then he gives them a standard by which to weigh those things against. And Paul says they were to weigh what these people were doing against what Paul has said and what Paul has taught. And as I've said before, these people were not just sitting around doing nothing. They weren't just purely being lazy. What they were doing is causing trouble by teaching something contrary to God's revealed truth. And it was their understanding of this truth, mostly in line with whether or not Jesus had come back yet or not, that made them say, we don't need to do anything. The church needs to support us because Jesus has already come back. So they were being idle because of their false teaching. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes to overcome this false teaching. He says this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly coming from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. These people were teaching something, and some of them were even saying, this comes from Paul. They were just lying about it saying, this comes from Paul. And Paul is writing to them to correct them, and he tells them, do not be deceived by this. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So here's the situation. False teachers claiming to be prophets and having a word from the Lord were coming into the church and declaring that Jesus Christ had already returned. And Paul says, don't be deceived by them. And he says, in order to not be deceived by them, you need a standard by which to weigh their words against, to know if what they're saying is right or wrong. And what Paul is telling them is that you weigh those people's teachings against his teachings, Paul's teachings. Well, who does he think he is? Who is Paul to say that his teaching was somehow better than anybody else's teaching? Why is his standard the one true standard? In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read this. I hope this is a passage you have memorized. It is crucial. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God's revealed word, scripture, is the standard by which Everything else must be weighed. But what is Scripture? Who gets to declare what Scripture is? Why does Paul get to say that his teaching is better, more truthful, more important than anybody else's teaching? That seems somewhat arrogant. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Apostles were those chosen by Jesus Christ to carry on his teaching. He specifically and personally chose them. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears. After Jesus had died and rose from the dead, he appears as the resurrected Lord to Paul, who wasn't even a believer or a Christian. He was a persecutor of Christians. And Jesus appears to him, and Paul realizes very suddenly everything he thought about Jesus was wrong. And Jesus says that Paul will be his apostle, the one that Paul or Jesus is sending out with Jesus' authority to go to the Gentiles. So Paul's teaching is different. But is it scripture? 2 Peter 3:15 and 16 is a very interesting little passage. Peter is writing a letter to believers, and he says something about Paul says this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That is true. Which ignorant and unstable people distort. It's also true. But look at this next passage. As they do the, what? Other scriptures to their own destruction. Do you understand what Peter's saying in that phrase? This is huge. Peter is saying people take scripture and they distort it and he is lumping Paul's letters in with scripture. Peter himself is saying that what Paul wrote is the very word of God. You will come across people from time to time it says, oh, the Bible doesn't really claim to be the word of God. It absolutely does. And it claims to have authority. It says because it is from God, it has authority. So what's going on in Thessalonica? It is a confusing culture where anything goes and you can believe whatever you want. And teachings were coming into the church that were wrong, specifically about Christ's return. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, they must take these false ideas and have a standard to judge them with. Something to say whether they are right or wrong, good or evil. All of this helps us to understand what's going on in our passage today. And we are getting there, trust me. So turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. We need to understand what it means to live by the standard of the word of God. To have a standard by which all things are judged. And we decide as followers of Jesus Christ whether that thing is right or wrong, good or bad. Now remember the context of this passage. Verses 12 through 24 is one unit on being a peace-filled gospel-displaying church. We talked about that last week. Talked about recognizing and respecting their leaders, warning the idle and disruptive people, encouraging the disheartened, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, not paying back wrong for wrong, striving to do what is good for each other and everyone else. But this begs the question, who gets to determine what's good? How do we do what's good and know that it's good? Verses 16 through 18, there are three commands. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. It goes on to talk about how to live, or this is actually about how to live the life of faith. Keep our eyes on Christ, 
and at all times, in all ways, acknowledge who he is and what he's doing. 16 through 18 has these positive commands. Rejoice, give thanks, pray continually. When we come to our passage today, 19 through 22, these are negative commands. Don't do this. It's something not to do or something to watch out for or be warned against. So let's look at these four verses. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? These verses have been much debated and discussed and argued about in so many ways. And as usual, what I find is that the arguments that most Christians have over a certain passage of Scripture, while they might be somewhat interesting, they tend to completely ignore the main point of what the author is talking about. And it's a hard passage, but it's important to get to the heart of what Paul is saying because I believe it has huge implications for us today. So we need to answer some questions. What is this spirit Paul's talking about? What does it mean to quench the spirit? How do we be sure we don't quench the spirit? What are the prophecies? What does it mean to despise or treat, despise these prophecies or treat them with contempt? And how do we make sure we don't do that? And what is it we're supposed to test? And how are we going to go about testing Now, I know at some point you guys are starting like your eyes are glazing over going, I don't know, it's a lot. It is a lot. But we need to be people of the word of God. And God ordained for this to be put in his word. And if we understand this, it has huge implications for how we live in our chaotic culture today. So stick with me. I want to start with the language here. I know everybody gets excited about language. Greek language is different than English. In English, if you change the order of the words, you change the order of the sentence. That's not entirely true in Greek. In Greek, the the subject and the predicate and all that's determined by the endings of the words. So to some degree, you can move those words around and the, the sentence can keep the basic same idea. But what happens in Greek is that the author then can change the order of the words to draw attention to something. And that's what's going on here. And it gets a little bit lost in the English. But if I was to translate this, and I'm no Greek scholar, but but to be a little more accurate to the order of the Greek, he says this, the spirit, that's first. The spirit, don't quench. Prophecies, don't treat with contempt. Everything, and the NIV here has test them all, seemingly talking about the prophecies, but The Greek actually isn't that specific. It's just everything, test. The good, hold on to it. The evil or every evil, all kinds of evil, reject it. So he's drawing our attention to these very important topics and telling us what to do with them. So let's look quickly in order at these things. He starts with the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Or the spirit, don't quench it. There is a theme throughout scripture of God's presence with God's people. 
Adam and Eve are created in an, a garden and God walks and relates with them in that garden. God calls Abraham and eventually the Israelites in a relationship with himself and he gives them the tabernacle, this building, this tent where God's presence dwells. Later on as they enter the holy land, they build the more permanent temple. But something amazing happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died and risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven and he promises to come again. And then we are told in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit fills the church. And it's not a building, it's not a location, it's a people. The Holy Spirit comes into the lives and the, the person of Christians. God's presence enters God's people to dwell with them. And scripture tells us the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. Many places talk about the Holy Spirit changing lives, convicting of sins, helping us to be holy, and all of that is true. But there's one overarching purpose of the Holy Spirit that is emphasized by Jesus Christ. And he says this in John chapter 14, 25 to 26. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The role of the Holy Spirit is to take God's word and apply it to our lives by reminding us by helping us to understand how it applies to our day-to-day lives, our thoughts, our decisions, and our actions. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is truly God, has as his primary role to help us to apply God's truth to our chaotic world. And so as we go back to this passage, Paul says we are not to quench The Holy Spirit. Quenching is very simple. It means to put out or douse a fire or to hinder something from spreading or working. So what is Paul talking about? In the context of the preceding verses, he's talking about living out the Christian life specifically within the church and then how we treat those outside the church. And so Paul's saying, this is what the Holy Spirit is teaching you to do. Don't resist it. The immediate context of these verses, Paul is linking the quenching of the Spirit with treating prophecies with contempt. We'll look at this in a second. But understand that God is at work right now in the church. In us feeble people struggling to find our way, God is at work. His holy presence, His Spirit is at work in us, teaching us, reminding us of what Jesus taught and applying these things to our lives. We have to ask ourselves, are we going to push back against this and say, God, I've got this. I don't need you. I don't need your word. I don't need your work in my life. That would be quenching the Spirit. Are we going to say, God, teach us? We are ignorant. We need you to teach us. We are struggling. We need you to help us. And so Paul says, don't quench the spirit. And then it gets harder. He says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. What are prophecies? And what was their role in the early church? 
It's important to understand at the time that 1 Thessalonians is written, it is one of the earliest books of the New Testament to be written. There is no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There is no Romans. There is no Peter. There's no Revelation. There's probably no other book of the New Testament written other than possibly James and maybe Galatians. They didn't have a New Testament in the early church written down until later. What they did have were apostles. People chosen by God, chosen by Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, who went out and when people were saying, hey, I think this, and somebody else said, I think this, an apostle could say, well, actually, Jesus said this. And I know he said that because I was there. Or he told me that. The early church had apostles who could speak with the authority of God saying, this is what our Lord taught. Now, it's important to note that according to the New Testament, the apostles did not continue on. As those early apostles chosen by Jesus Christ died, there is no record of them being replaced in the New Testament church. That authority, those who were there with Jesus and could proclaim that what Jesus taught and say this is the very word of God, those people died off. And that role ended. But the other thing that God gave to the early church were prophets. People with a gift of receiving instructions from God and communicating those instructions or those messages to the early church. This was a gift, as you might imagine, that was often abused. And that was one of the things going on in Thessalonica. And one of the things throughout the entirety of the New Testament, it says over and over again, if someone claims to speak on behalf of God, that message must be weighed against a standard of truth, which is the word of God and the teachings of the apostles. Prophecies in the New Testament are not equal to Scripture. That was not how they saw them. That was not how they treated them. Somebody could stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord that I think this, this church needs to hear. And the leaders of that church would say, that's great. Let's hear it. Now let's weigh it against the holy standard that has the authority of the word of God. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Whoop, that was right. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 37 to 38. Paul says, because Corinth had a real big problem with this. Everybody had a word from the Lord. Everybody thought they had a prophecy for the church. And Paul says, I love the way he says this. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves, or they will themselves, be ignored. Paul says, take what these prophets are saying and weigh it against what I myself, Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ, am saying. And if they ignore the authority I have in Christ, you should ignore them. That's a powerful standard. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22 then, he comes back and he talks about prophecies in the New Testament church. And he says that they need to be tested. Test them. Hold on to what is good. Get rid of what is evil. 
concerning prophecy in the New Testament church, there's a huge debate over whether or not this spiritual gift continues on today. There are many people like apostles that would say that gift ended during the New Testament time. Or that once we had the New Testament written down, we no longer needed prophecies, and so the gift of prophecies no longer functions today. I just briefly want to give you my view, and maybe some of you don't care about this, you haven't heard this debate, but some of you will have, and I need to talk about it. I personally do not see anything in Scripture that clearly states that God ended the spiritual gift of prophecy. I don't see an authoritative statement from Jesus or the apostles saying, this has ended. And so on the authority of the word of God, I cannot stand and say, that gift has absolutely ended and can never happen again. However, I would be extremely skeptical of someone claiming to have a prophetic word from God. And I would weigh it against the authoritative word of God. If someone stands up and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, you need to do this. You should not take that as an absolute command from God. I have to do this, and if I don't do that, I'm being disobedient to the Lord. You need to take that back to the word of God and weigh it to see if it's true. Because the authority is in the word of God. Just like, and Paul deals with this the same way, preachers and teachers. You should take what I say and weigh it against the authority of the word of God. But let's look at what Paul is talking about here. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. He doesn't mean don't hate them. He means don't treat them as something common or unimportant. Again, in their confusing culture where they had just heard the gospel, they didn't have the New Testament, God used prophecies as a way to direct his people and apply the truth of the gospel. So if they were to ignore that and act like, well, it's completely no big deal. We don't have to listen to anything God says. That would be treating those prophecies with contempt. And that would be a problem because they lived in a chaotic and messed up world and they needed God's direction and truth. So how were they treating prophecies with contempt? Unfortunately, we're not entirely sure. One possibility is because there were false prophets saying false things in the church, as we've already looked at, that others were basically saying, we're not going to listen to any of it. We don't have to deal with any of it. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't stop listening to God. He is directing you and guiding you. Don't give up on that. And then in verse 21, he says, test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I do believe the NIV is right in their interpretation here. He's saying, take all of those things that are being claimed to come from the Lord. Test them. Weigh them against the word of God, against scripture, against Paul's teaching. And there is a broader application as well. Test everything. You hear speakers on the TV or on the internet. You hear new ideas, new philosophers, just like they had in Athens. We hear all these new ideas all the time. Test it. Weigh it against the word of God. And then hold on to what God's word word says is good. And get rid of what God's word says is evil. 
Paul is writing to a struggling church living in a chaotic world and a chaotic culture. There were influences of their culture that were infiltrating their church. There were teachers claiming to be Christians, teaching things contrary to the word of God and contrary to what Paul had taught them. And Paul's warning and instruction to them is listen to God. Listen to his truth, his direction. Our world is very similar to ancient Greece. People are worshiping many gods and goddesses by seeking their own personal happiness and fulfillment and whatever they think will help them in this life. And they're coming up with their own truth and their own meaning. People are listening to many different forms or sources of truth or saying there is no truth whatsoever. These ideas are infiltrating our minds as Christians and they're infiltrating even the teachings of Christian churches. We need to hear the big picture of Paul's warning here. We must keep our focus on what God's spirit, God's presence is doing in the church. We must weigh everything against the standard of God's word, hold on to the good, reject what is evil. And if it was hard back then, guess what? It's going to be hard today too. But God has a plan. He has a purpose for where this leads. And next week, we're going to look at the next two verses. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. It's easy to feel defeated as Christians. It's easy to feel like culture's just gone, our world's just gone, there's nothing we can do. Some Christians then say, well, let's just gather in our holy huddle and we'll just be our own little group and we'll forget all about them. Other Christians say, well, let's be more like them. Let's be more sensitive to them so we can draw them into the church. But God's word says, weigh everything against the standard of God's word. We have the word of God that cuts through this chaos. And if we despise or treat as unimportant the word of God, God's truth, or we ignore the Holy Spirit as he reminds us of these things, we are accepting and inviting the chaos of our culture into our church. This does not bring peace. Only the gospel brings peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a hard passage. And so we need your wisdom, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what you're saying. But I do think underneath all of this is the importance of having a standard by which we judge truth and error, good and evil. And so I pray that we would be open as we have your finished word in front of us. We have so much more to weigh things against than these people had in Thessalonica. What a gift you have given us through your word. May we not despise that. We're treated as unimportant. May we not neglect it in our day-to-day lives or in our church, our pulpit, our Sunday school classes, our small groups. May we find joy in pouring over your word and correctly interpreting it and applying it to our lives. 
May we see clearly through the lens of your word to everything going on in our world and how we should interact and respond to these things. Because you have a plan. Through the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, as you sustain us and hold us through until the time that Jesus returns, you have a plan. You are the God of peace who is sovereign over all things. So I pray that we would hold on fast to the truth of your word, even in the midst of a chaotic culture that rejects who you are of what you have said. May we be a shining light pointing people to the truth of your word that leads them to your son, Jesus Christ, who can save them from their sins. We pray this in his name. Amen.